Do you need treatment or surgery? There's no need to wait or travel abroad. Receive treatment at Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast or Ballykelly under the Northern Ireland Planned Healthcare Scheme at potentially no cost. Why wait? Text hello to 51777 or visit kingsbridgeprivatehospital.com for further information. Hello and good evening. It's Tuesday the 29th of August. I'm Ronan Berry and you're very welcome to Taking Care of Business. Coming up between now and 8pm. The opportunities and challenges of hybrid working will be explored with workplace leadership architect Teresa Hand Campbell. I'll have some information on a mouth-watering gastric event taking place on Mount Briscoe Organic Farm early next month. And IP, or intellectual property, is a vital part of the strategic toolkit for any business. Patent attorney Marie Walsh from HGF will explain why businesses must protect their IP and also detail why Ireland is lagging behind Europe in adopting the Unified Patent Court. But before all that, you may be familiar with the clothing brand Walker and Hunt and indeed have seen it on shelves of many stores across the Midlands. What you may not know, though, is that it is the brainchild of Luke Dully from Cousin in Athlone. And Luke decided a few years ago to go and establish his own clothing brand. And Luke, I'm delighted to say, joins me now. Luke, what was it compelled you to start up your own clothing brand in what I can only imagine is a highly saturated marketplace? The idea first came when I left college. Uh, I got a graduate job in 2017 in Dublin, obviously going from a student lifestyle to a graduate lifestyle and earning for the first time somewhat decent money. I slowly moved to more away from fast fast fashion and into more kind of long-term quality investment pieces. Going into my job, the corporate job in Dublin, I started buying a lot of UK, US and European brands. And the more I kind of spent, the more questions I kind of asked, is there an Irish brand that I perceive to be the same quality, the same brand image as what I've been buying? The more I looked into it, there wasn't. From that then, I moved to Austin, Texas for a year and worked with Facebook. Kind of always kind of penciling idea when I came home. I had everything kind of planned out to give it a full crack. I moved home then in November 2018, I think it was, with the name Walker and Hunt, the kind of image, brand values I wanted Walker and Hunt to represent. And we launched in June 2019. Six months in, we had a decent Christmas, had some wholesale accounts on board. Uh, we had our first short-term shopping at loan, and then COVID came in March 2020. What impact had that on the business? Did it basically make you pause? Did it look, did it, did it allow you time to look at how the business may develop from that point as well? You were, you were aiming, I would guess, at this point at an entirely online clothing store. When we when I got first got the samples and started chatting to factories, obviously with factories at an early stage, the minimum order quantity are quite high, and to do a launch a collection, you're looking at like maybe, I don't know, 15, 20, 25,000 euros for maybe 10 or 15 different styles. So I knew, obviously, from, from the get-go, I wouldn't be able to move that much stock online. So one of the reasons I wanted to go into wholesale was to get the quality across, more kind of uh, eyeballs on the brand. Didn't really have online established as well as it is now in terms of the quality of the imagery, the website, the customer service, the speed of shipping and everything. So... When I first launched, wholesale was our main kind of focus just in terms of cash flow and everything else. And then when COVID came, the shops stopped ordering. We had to do a massive kind of turnaround towards online and what it actually takes to get the online off the ground, which we're still learning now at the moment. But um, when I first started off, I knew that because the price point, because the quality entailed, 
get a new customer, we'd have to have a physical presence as well. And that's kind of what we're, we're still doing today. And then to, to take it from that idea, like, and it sounds like, you know, you hit on a kind of a brand name, you had a, a brand identity in mind and you, you can get people on board to kind of help you craft that brand, do that, you know, design logos, design the kind of the image around the company. But when it came yeah. to actually getting your hands on those initial products and sourcing them, what was that like? I mean, are you, are you largely, are you the person who is choosing those products? Are you involved in the design process? How does that work? Um, it's a bit of a minefield, I suppose, starting off. Obviously, when I first done it, um, with doing wholesale, you plan nearly a year in advance, which showing shops in just say for in January for what's coming in in August, September, October. So I always look at brands I like, inspired to read certain styles, colors, and a lot of times with Walker and Hood, what I want Walker and Hood to be is like a modern, a brand for a modern man that has quite high quality clothing that's a timeless style, you know, like a modern twist, and it kind of represents the younger man, man gentleman which is um, likes to look well, self-improvement is something that we're really hitting on in terms of um, mindset, looks after their body, their health, their mind. This is something going forward that we really wanted. And with that then, a simple style that they can wear from the office, out, out and about in the evenings for their coffees and everything. And then in terms of crafting styles to that, obviously less is a lot more sometimes. And that's something that we're kind of really focused on walking around. Can you wear the same, the same jumper for two, three years it won't go out of trend. The quality will hold. Working with factories in that sense, then I think we work with about nine factories at the moment from Turkey, Portugal, China, India, um, through like, knitwear, sweats and hoods and everything else. Style-wise is a bit of a minefield because obviously the shops want new styles each season, whereas once you kind of get running two and three years in, you kind of learn your customer. And that's what we're doing now. Starting off is quite difficult, obviously, going around to shops. We brought in maybe 30, sh- 30 styles of samples. The shops picked maybe 15, seven or eight of them really worked well and the others didn't. And that's just the nature of the beast. As you get better, you learn and learn and learn and learn. And Walker and Hunts, the brand is stocked in a number of stores, not just around the Midlands, but across the country, even further afield as well. If you want to give us an indication of some of the stores that the product is in at the minute as well, and what was it like when you first approached those stores as a startup, as somebody who had an idea and then had the product to back it up as well? What were those initial conversations like with those, with those retailers? It was, re- it was actually quite difficult to start, very difficult, and still can be difficult on some of the bigger stores. Um, I suppose in the Midlands area, we would be in... Uh, Guy Clothing in Tullamore, Anthony Ryan's in Galway City, uh, we're in Spurt in Longford, uh, Atai, um, Manley's in Atai, Nathalhenny's in Mead, uh, trying to think top of my head here, um, a few in Tipperary and Nina. Going around, obviously, walking in, I had no real knowledge of the, in the industry, no more than buying any product for a shop as a buyer or shop owner. They have limited space, they want to put kind of their revenue into what no what they know work. So getting getting in the doors very early on was quite difficult. Um but once the brand gets out there and work gets around, they start kinda of coming to you, which obviously is a good sign that you're doing something right. And even to this day I think we're stocked in about twenty five uh twenty five or thirty shops around Ireland and we've done some wholesale to Netherlands as well at the moment. 
wow, that's that's incredible going. I suppose when you do factor in, as you mentioned, those COVID years as well, which were, were difficult for any business, you know, building shops were actually closed. There wasn't much could be done. Um, that That's huge progress in the time. In order to get to this point as well, have you looked at, you know, in, in terms of building the original business, have you brought in people? Have you got some outside help as well? Did you look at things like the enterprise office in terms of supports and indeed getting that idea off the ground and turning into the business that Walker and Hunt now is? Yeah, we got all, all the support from Leo. Uh, Leo Westmead was my local Leo. Every support that was available, we've we've got, and they've helped us in every single way um, in terms of going to trade shows, going to showrooms across Europe, um, startup costs, obviously sampling costs and everything else at the very start is quite difficult. Uh, and then from that then we have like ad agencies at the moment, we have consultants, um, everything, is outs- everything already is outsourced to experts for the early stages to grow it. The, the strong point with going to experts, you pay a bit more, but you're learning their mistakes from the get-go, which long-term. But I'm sure launching a new brand into that kind of saturated market of clothing as well, that needs a big effort. You you probably have a window that you've got to get the brand name out there. You've managed to do that as well. What were the kind of key key things of that? Like what were the kind of key success points along the way that really made you feel, look, I'm onto something good here and this brand is becoming known and becoming recognised? Well, I suppose anyone that's kind of is that startup a business themselves or in business, it's a mental battle with yourself from the early days in terms of do you have you proven to yourself that the brand can work, that you can keep driving it forward to the next level, next level, next level. And they kind of done that in small increments in terms of having our own pop-up shop, selling to wholesale stores. Uh, our first year after COVID, we had a shop in Blanche, Blanchetown for three months. All these things kind of let me build confidence in my head that I can keep putting the foot in the gas and I suppose take the big risks without having that kind of second out in the back of your head. Obviously, at times, things don't go to plan, but that is it. Um, and then back to your question. Sorry, I forgot your question there again. Notice, I suppose, just asking you about the, the support to Jews as well, and I suppose creating that, creating awareness of a new brand among so many, you know, long-established brands out there as well. What was the kind of key points of that, like and the, the big thing that meant you made you go, wow, yeah, this is actually working. People, people like my brand and people are prepared to part with money for my clothing. This year alone, we've become really, really, really data-driven. Last year was kind of our first year in on-COVID learning. So this year, we've been we've took on a, a company called Store Hero. They're a tech company that's actually quite new. Anyone in the e-commerce space, I'd recommend getting it. Um, so we're focusing really on brand, the returning customer, and the creatives and the content going forward. So from mid mid next month on, we'll we'll be really pushing the longer brand mess- message. Whereas the first two or three years, it was more trying to grow in sales focus and now it's down to how are we different than other brands and that would be our main message going forward. I think that's the key for any fashion brand. Yeah, I say a huge progress in, in a relatively short space of time when you factor in everything that happened between 2021 and 2022. What's next on the cards for Walker and Hunt? So we've actually relocated our warehouse from Athlone to Belfast to allow us to go into the UK and that's kind of starting to happen now at the moment in in slow kind of progress. We're, not, we're trying to be very careful. Obviously, we've I have 100% of the company. We have no outside investors or anything. So you have to punch quite smart as best as possible without burning through, I suppose, finances trying to, uh, to grow it. So we'll continue to grow uh, online and our wholesale. Hopefully by this time next year, we'll have half our revenue coming from the UK. Well, ambitious plans as well. Final question for you, Luke. At any point, did people tell you you were mad? I think when I first started, <laughs> I, think when I, first started I thought in my head that I'd have to... Um, 
make it work outside of Ireland first for people to to um, kind of believe in the brand. I don't know, maybe that was just my own kind of insecurity in my head, just that, like, from uh, Athlone, what do you think? Do you think you're Ralph Lauren or whoever walking around? Um, but it was actually quite the opposite. Like, the local support, even in Athlone, around the area, in Ireland in general, has been quite, quite good. And only forward, it's got us to where we are. But again, anyone starting out, they probably knows themselves, the mental battle with yourself, and obviously to get a business to the next level, you're going to have to change the person, and the whole mindset growth behind trying to build a business is quite enjoyable and tough at times, which I'm really enjoying at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it as well, and it sounds like there's there's great things happening, and indeed even more great things to come. But for now, Luke, I'm going to let you back to what's undoubtedly a busy schedule, but that's Luke Dully there from Athlone, the, the founder and owner of Walker & Hunt. You can find out find them at walkerandhunt.com. We're checking out their online store there too. Luke, congratulations and all the very best with Walker & Hunt as you move forward. Thanks very much, Ron. Time now for a short break. After that, why you should look at protecting the intellectual property for your business and ensure that it is part of the strategic toolkit for your company. Midlands 183. Welcome back to Taking Care of Business. Now, the area of IP or intellectual property is one that for most of you listening, you're probably quite aware of what it is. Do you know precisely what it means and how it impacts or how it's applicable to your business? Well, that's a whole other question and it's a very, very specialist and specific area. Indeed, there's a number of movements happening in terms of the IP and particularly the unitary patent and the unified patent court for Ireland as well. And it's quite a complex issue, but it can be broken down, thankfully, by a relevant expert and evening's expert on IP is Murray Walsh and Murray comes is from HGF up in Dublin now quick introduction to HGF they are one of Europe's leading intellectual property firms they bring together over 195 patent attorneys trademark attorneys design attorneys IP solicitors and attorneys at law across 23 offices in 7 European countries Murray is based up in Dublin and has over 25 years experience in advising clients including startups and SMEs right up to large corporations and multinationals a very good evening Murray and welcome to taking care of business. Hello, Ronan and listeners, and thanks so much for inviting me onto your, your, your show and this particular segment on intellectual property. Marie, you're going to talk to us later about the unitary patent and indeed the unified patent court as well. But I suppose to kick off, for a typical business owner, be it a startup, somebody's an established business already, or somebody who's looking at going and creating something new, looking at innovation piece, that research and design piece and development piece, intellectual property really is a huge part of this. Now, a recent piece that you wrote, you suggest that it's a core part of any business and it's particularly vital, you know, for the, the, in the strategic toolkit for any business that looks to create value through innovation and constant iterative improvements in its products and processes. Can you strip that back down for, say, your typical business owner about what IP actually is and I suppose what they need to be aware of with regards to intellectual property. Yeah, so I would talk with a lot of of uh, SMEs and a lot of startup businesses, uh, particularly since we moved our office to the Guinness Enterprise Center, um, where we're literally in the midst of of a lot of startups. So we're we're quite happy to have those very flowing early stage conversations when people are literally creating their product concept. And of course, as you say, intellectual property is this umbrella term and we need to break it down a little bit. So let's do that. So we're looking at for innovation, for R&D, for anything technical, we're looking at protecting that by potentially filing a patent application. For the other part, of course, that every business has is their trademark. 
uh, on which they hang their reputation and all that hard work that they go into building a reliable product. So that's around protecting by registered trademarks. There is an unregistered system, but but it's always uh, best to have an actual your trademark on the trademark register. So the other parts of, of IP that people often forget about are secret know-how and trade secrets, which has come to the fore a lot more and given a lot more attention in recent years with improvements in legislation around trade secrets. So there basically is your classic Coca-Cola example where all of your uh, intellectual property type investment decisions go into trying to keep that under wraps, the secret sauce, as it were, and um, really focusing around that. And then, of course, there's also the likes of registered designs, uh, which are much more around visual uh, aspects of, of products. Um, so from what you'll have gathered, they're all very tangible. There, There's no, um, I haven't touched there on copyright, which, of course, is another element. But but in our particular area around uh, technology and and business uh, and the business of innovation, it tends to be more the, the, the former uh, types of intellectual property that I mentioned, patents, trademarks, registered designs and trade secrets. Copyright is not yeah, to be overlooked, of you, course. If you take a product such as Coca-Cola, we know there's a secret there that they protect very, very closely. Mm. When it comes to something then maybe like, say, software development, is it much more complex then to sort of try and, and actually kind of put down on paper who actually invented it, who's the owner of it, and, and indeed who has rights to that? Right. Well, thank you for raising that. And, and I suppose it, it just to... It's not just even the software development as such, but certainly in the areas of software development, there are particular considerations around uh, drilling into the particular aspects that could well be patentable in there. So there's a myth out there that software isn't patentable, and that literally is a myth. Uh, so. There's plenty of patents granted for, for software-related inventions. So notice there, I didn't say software. I said software-related inventions. So there is a whole conversation around that to be had. And we're very happy to have it with anyone that wants to explore that in more detail. Um, you just touched there as well, Ronan, on the, 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 the aspects around ownership and when it comes to IP, this is one particular question that I, I really, it's one of the first ones that I bring up with SMEs and, and startups in the conversation. And that is, who owns what? If if there's ever, if, if two people come into me uh, proposing as a startup or at a, trying to upscale, the first thing I actually say to them is that who owns what question. Um, there's often collaboration. There may have been consultants involved. There may have been other uh, inputs from from people. And of course, nowadays we're we're all uh, very very committed to the push to the the circular economy. And my particular passionate piece there around intellectual property and the circular economy is supporting that collaboration between uh, individuals who historically mightn't have been working together at all, but now they need to, in order to come up with solutions uh, to, to move us into a better place with regard to sustainability and sustainable products. So who owns what is a key one. Um, and sometimes they say to me, look, why does it matter? We, we've come up with this uh, product or, or process 
And it really matters. If people are going to fall out about something, it's almost always around the who owns what question. So that's a, a key piece up front to have that framework and to think about uh, that key part of of an intellectual property strategy for a business. And of course, that will differ greatly from, say, a shareholding. That's an entirely different matter in terms of the ownership or the management of a company. This is down to, like, I suppose, that idea. And if somebody has a new idea, a new concept, it can't be just a generic business idea, as you've kind of said as well. It has to be something that's new. There's an inventive piece to it and almost that nobody has done before. And But like businesses, if you have an idea, you can actually do like a patent search and check what patents are currently filed or if any IP is currently owned by, by other companies. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. That's a key piece as well. So in terms of IP strategy, the way I like to look at it and to to talk about it with with SMEs and startups is your own IP. That's one part of the jigsaw. But exactly as you said, Ronan, other people's, your competitors' intellectual property, that's another big piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And if nothing else, when when you have a business and you're developing your product or your service and you're looking for your unique selling proposition, your USP, I like to say, look, intellectual property is, is completely demystified by just think about your USP. Think about how are you going to protect that USP? And all we're doing here is fitting in an IP strategy piece in with your overall business strategy. Um, and exactly as you said, the, the need to watch for competitors' uh, IP is is vital because you don't want to get either uh, tripped up by by ending up in a, in a, a legal situation because you're potentially infringing their existing patent or trademark or design rights, but also it's a business tool. All of this, in my opinion, should be seen as a business tool to be used to try and shift that competitiveness um, in, in, that, in your business's favour. So monitoring your competitor's IP is very readily done using those registers that I mentioned, uh, publicly available all all completely available for ready searching uh, with no, there's no cloak and dagger stuff involved. It's all very much online. Um, once once the rights have been uh, uh, published, they're all there for searching. Yes. Our Irish companies, when it comes to looking at IP, are companies generally, you know, quite forward thinking and to look at this at a very early stage or does it often come almost nearly too late where you've got a great idea, you've got a great concept, maybe a business even started and you then discover that other people maybe own the IP or patent rights and it causes huge issues? Like are we, are companies typically too late to the game or has that been changing over the last number of years? Yes, it's it's huge in terms of variety and a lot of it is relating to what information would have been available for the com- to the companies in relation to IP from day one. Because the best scenario really is to have those conversations really early because a key thing with patents is that, of course, the the product or process has to be novel and inventive on the day that you present your patent application to the patents office. And that's not going to be new if you actually have released it uh, freely into the public domain, as it were, yourself. So I have had some clients who've actually, unfortunately, either... Well, it's fortunate in the sense of marketing, but unfortunately in the sense of timing. And actually timing is everything in this uh, to make sure that you have the rights secured before 
you go out and release it into the public domain have and and put it out on the website. I had one client who would actually run a lovely little video and put it on on the website and unfortunately uh, then came afterwards to, to try and file a patent application but it was just too late. Everything, everything that uh, was inventive in that invention was already up on, up on the website and, you know, I, 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 it would be completely and utterly a waste of money to try and seek a patent then because it just wouldn't be valid. Anyone could invalidate it afterwards based on their own disclosure on their own website. Um, so to answer your question, I suppose it's been improving quite a bit in the last few years because there, there tends to be a little bit more publicity around IP rights. But at the same time, the the narrative of having that conversation early with the likes of, of a patent attorney or trademark attorney, rather than being afraid, oh, I'm going to be charged X, Y, Z for even, you know, picking up the phone or a half hour conversation. That's absolutely not the case. I, I can't swear for everybody, of course, but certainly I can speak for myself well, that we're very, very happy to have those early stage conversations, it, it, um, which can be going on for yeah. for several months like as as a project is being yeah, developed. It, it sounds to be such an important conversation because you may have a great idea, a great concept. You may have launched it to then discover that you've basically given away all your kind of secret sauces without actually protecting that. And I suppose that must be a challenge for startups as well, because undoubtedly applying for a patent that they are securing those. IP rights, it's probably not a, a quick process. It's not indeed, yes, but it's it's one of those processes that is now very much more supported in terms of looking at maybe the EU SME IP fund, which is a relatively recent um, uh, recently available fund and of course there's other funds available as well from, from uh, the LEO offices and Enterprise Ireland. But um, the, the conversation tends to be very much focused on what the SME or, or startup is planning on doing. So, you know, there can be a lot of peripheral information, but we try and focus it on what's relevant for that particular startup. So there's not an overload of, of uh, surplus information, if you like. The main thing being keep it under wraps until you've investigated whether it can be protected by patents. Trademarks, it, it's not so crucial in that regard. But of course, copying is something that uh, is certainly not a form of flattery uh, 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 in our business, that's for sure, and not for many startups either. You know, I was in a room one time when it was a startup uh, type of workshop and I was just delivering the segment on IP and one person just gave the, the, the story of even having to redo the headed notepaper. At, at a very early stage, that's, of course, a huge cost um, because of having to rebrand after seeing someone's logo on, on the on their van, uh, which had actually been copied. So it can be from the very early stage where where those kind of uh, significant setbacks can delay a startup at, at crucial stages. And, and undoubtedly come at a cost as well. But when it comes Absolutely. to filing patents and looking at intellectual property as well, of course, there might be different rules in different jurisdictions you know, across the world too. And you actually wrote an opinion piece recently and highlighting that there are changes afoot in Europe as well. Indeed, as the first of, first of June of this year, um, new legislation has come into force within some European countries. But your piece suggests that Ireland were a little bit, indeed, a, a long way behind on this one as well. 
Talk, talk to us about the unitary pattern and indeed and, and why we believe that Ireland is so far behind in terms of signing up to this. Yes, I did. Uh, that's right. I wrote the piece around uh, after the shortly after the 1st of June when this new system came into being in in uh, in Europe. So Ireland, as you say, is not currently in the system, Rona. Now, the intent is, and indeed, uh, even as far back as, as 2013, the Irish government has committed that Ireland will be part of this new unitary patent and unified patent court system. Um, and in fact, I suppose in many ways, the delay in by by uh, Ireland in joining is to do with the need for a referendum. So we will need to have a referendum. So indeed, patents will be uh, emerging very much in the media, not quite yet, but uh, over the next several months, because the Irish government has committed to hold a referendum by May 2024. That was... Um, issued in a statement in around the summer of uh, last year, actually, summer 2022. So we can be expecting a referendum to be announced um, for for summer of 2024 as per the Irish government's commitment. So what's happening basically is that this new uh, patent system um, has created uh, the start of a unitary patent. So it's very much linked with EU system. The The previous European system was not an EU system. So going forward, though, and indeed since 1st of June, as you mentioned, uh, we have this new court for patent litigation providing a single, single venue for participating EU member states. So Ireland, as I said, currently is not one of those participating EU member states, but it is expected well, subject, of course, to a, a, the positive uh, vote by um, the Irish public in the referendum. But eventually, we would hope to see that Ireland will be part of this this new unitary patent system. But at the moment, for Irish businesses, what does it mean? So what it really means, in my opinion, is that relative to, for instance, a, a French startup or a German startup that are in this new unitary patent system, uh, that the costs are going to be uh, higher for an Irish business to obtain the same geographical coverage across European countries um, so than it would be for that French or German startup. So basically, we're what, what we're hoping to have once once Ireland is part of the system is that there'll be reduced complexity for Irish businesses and those conversations that you mentioned around intellectual property and a lot of uh, decision making around a la carte selection of countries for going forward and marketplace decisions and competitiveness decisions, that would all be reduced and of course, anything you're talking about in a, in in an element to do with a legal uh, situation, reduced complexity means lower costs. So the the delay ultimately is to do with the the need for a referendum. So we 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 hope that we will soon hear a, a date for the referendum, probably around. May, June 2024. Coming up after the break, I'm going to explore the challenges and opportunities 
of hybrid working with workplace leadership architect Teresa and Campbell. Do you need treatment or surgery? There's no need to wait or travel abroad. Receive treatment at Kingsbridge Private Hospital in Belfast or Ballykelly under the Northern Ireland Planned Healthcare Scheme at potentially no cost. Why wait? Text hello to 51777 or visit kingsbridgeprivatehospital.com for further information. If you think back a couple of years, we didn't even know what the term hybrid working meant. Ireland now sees the second highest rate of job ads globally that advertise hybrid working as part of the package. And also over a quarter of Ireland's workers now operate from home most of the time. Seismic change in a very short period of time in this country. To look more at this topic of hybrid working and to explore the opportunities and indeed challenges of hybrid working, I'm delighted to be joined by Theresa Han Campbell of THC Consult, a workplace leadership architect. Theresa, this topic of hybrid working, it is not going away. And I think companies who choose to ignore it, the opportunities with it, um, are probably going to lose a bit of competitive advantage too. But I suppose companies also need to be aware of the downsides. Let's start with the positives, the opportunities. When it comes to to, to hybrid working, what are the opportunities there for both employees and indeed for employers? Well, you know, coincidentally, um, yesterday's Indo, uh, the people and culture section, they did some uh, uh, work around, um, some articles around Carlo and businesses from Carlo. And I, I looked at uh, hybrid working in cybersecurity within Andrew Tobin and his take on it, that working in private cloud space, they were well placed to actually adapt when the time came with COVID, etc. And he says the company has said office days, but employees can choose to work both at the office and remotely, which encourages balance. And the employees, for him, the employees value the flexibility to work either remotely or from the office. It's beneficial to meet in person every so often. But that element of work-life balance that it offers is is just brilliant. Also, there is Jerry O'Driscoll, who resonates with the whole idea of achieving the work-life balance. So if I'm a leader in the workplace, what do I have to look out for? And how do I embrace my opportunities? You need clear plans for when and how your team should meet. So for which part, part of the work processes is it accessible for your team to work independently of time and location? I suppose then, you, when do you want your team to work simultaneously and in the same place? Decide to take the input from your colleagues, your employees, and your team leads. As you know, if there's involvement in discussion, there's more likely to be engagement. And then be clear in your communication when you've decided what is best for your organization or your team. And a lot of companies actually have found that they've made great savings in terms of adapting this hybrid work model. There'll be opportunities for many companies to cut costs by decreasing the size of their office spaces, moving certain sites to less expensive locations. And if employees prefer to live in the suburbs or work in in local homes in the suburbs, it works all the better for the employer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, mean, I know. I know. Look, at it, it was something that originally the idea of kind of remote or hybrid, or it was an emergency reaction to what was thrust upon people with the COVID nineteen pandemics and stuff. It was a credit to the country and to so many companies that they could keep operations going during COVID using that model. You know, when you factor in that people had maybe loved ones at home, they had children at home. You know, and it was a very very strange time in all our lives. 
Um, I think what has definitely surprised people is the the amount of hybrid working that is now kind of an, a, an integral part of people's weeks as well. So when it comes to actually setting, I suppose, rules and and agreements and agendas around hybrid working as well, are companies are, are are we getting better at doing that? Because obviously it can't be a model where people pick and choose where and when they want to be. There has to be some consensus and agreement around that. Well, I suppose why you enjoy that um, uh, increased talent pool and you're reached getting more talent in, you really need to be aware of uh, ensuring that the team gets to know each other and that there is that physical meet and that building of culture as they go as well and that you ward off the alienation of working from home and not ever touching base with your colleagues or with the, the boss. So it's up to the boss to create these moments, create these situations, even create these social occasions where the team feel like they belong. I think it's particularly difficult for a newcomers to a company when well, the onboarding process, I don't think that can be achieved very well online. So there's a, there's a, a, you can't beat the eyeball to eyeball. You can't beat these conversations that are held at, at the water fountain, etc. And so you've got to try and bridge the gaps and synergize and make sure you get the best of both worlds. But there's no doubt about it. For men in particular, they really saw during lockdown what they were missing in terms of watching their family grow around the kitchen table and while they were working in, a, in an office, maybe alongside it somewhere. And so, of course, I did read an article recently where it was saying that there's a certain portion of people who absolutely would embrace the opportunity to get back to office full time to get away from their families and not have to carry their weight or, or, or you know, do their part at home as well. But I suppose it's, it's, uh, it's different for everybody involved too. I suppose, Teresa, we, we, we're often told about the opportunities that are there, you know, and, and companies can show that there's increased productivity, happier employees as well, provided they've got that framework, they've got the structure right as well. There are also going to be downsides, though, too. Um, maybe for companies who don't manage this correctly as well. What are the typical downsides that, 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 that are emerging now that we've been under year, 18 months, kind of in a, in a very much a hybrid working uh, scenario? I, I think it, it probably is, in, in, the point I'm going to make now is the reason why some people would say, well, let me get back to what was the norm be- before COVID. That a possibility of losing touch with your people in the hybrid organisation. So if I'm a business owner or a leader, I have to realise that no one size fits all. Some will enjoy a hybrid future and some won't. And a question to all leaders post-COVID is, do you know the mental state of your employees? Do you know where they would like to be in the future? Did you call it your, your co-workers? your direct reports to see how they're doing this day. And even with the busy schedule of back-to-back digital meetings, you still run the risk of being invisible. And that's a very real risk. The many small touch points with employees during the day are very difficult to replicate in the digital world. So how do you manage to stay digitally in sight with your team? That's a major one. I suppose loyalty as well. Loyalty could be a big issue in the hybrid future. Are you managing to hold on to your talent? Are you manage, managing to keep them engaged, keep them inspired, keep them involved? And then, of course, the time management in a hybrid future. Exactly. And of course, um, 
Indeed, like a, a bad manager in any scenario um, is is recipe for disaster too. So, I mean, it's no different really if you've got a, a poor or an ineffective manager in a physical work environment or indeed in a remote or hybrid work. Um, equally, each are going to present their own challenges there too. Do you find in your own day-to-day work as, as a consultant, are organisations getting in touch to see about what they can do in terms of their staff and the training and, I suppose, helping to kind of change attitudes and behaviours towards things like hybrid working? Absolutely. And taking ownership, too, of your own health and well-being. I think a lot is left up to companies to provide. And we've become a little lazy, maybe, in ways in expecting a lot to come from the uh, leader and and the, the actual workplace. But we must agents in our own development as well. So it, it, a lot depends on the personality. A lot depends on the level of engagement pre-COVID and the, your strategic planning for your career, your dedication and your actual interest. Is the person's job fit right? Are you in the right space in the first space? I think hybrid working works as an eliminator with those who are not in the right space in the first instance. What do you think? I think that's I, I, you've, you've really that's an interesting point as well. I think eliminator is a strong word on it. Um, I think one can see how that could be a case that, you know, you mentioned how even with back to back online meetings or whatever engagements and mechanisms a company may use that an employee could still be largely invisible. That may not be, you know, the, the fault of the company. It could be that person. And as you're suggesting that maybe the mindset or the, st- the state of career, the stage of career they're at at that point. Um, what would be very interesting, and that is from an employment law perspective, how that could be handled if that employee had to be let go or, or you know, basically didn't pass a probation period, how that could be proven. We're into a, a deeper, more complex layer now. Yeah, I you know I talked in the past about this notion of the psychological contract and that psychological contract starts at the moment of interview and they find, let's say I'm sitting one side of the table, my interviewers at the other side, I'm sizing them up, they're sizing me up for fit and they reckon millennials and Gen Z are far more likely to say, no, I don't think your work culture suits me when they're offered the job. So these self-eliminate from the beginning. And the psychological contract goes on. It's all based around trust, and trust is the glue that holds it together. So I, I give A, B, C, and D. I give extra in building and in, 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 in building my career, but in working for your organization. What am I going to get out of it? What are the growth opportunities and what are the rewards? And if I as an employer fail to come through on that, I rupture that trust. And I believe it's 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 um, like Humpty Dumpty break it and you don't put it together again. You know this notion of trust. Teresa, as always, it's absolutely fascinating. After the break, there is a gastric treat coming your way. It's taking place in County Offaly next month. Find out all about that very shortly. Midlands One Eight Three. Mount Briscoe Organic Farm in Dangan County Offaly will host their third Autumn Wild Dining Experience on the 12th of September. Tickets are now available at Eventbrite and I find out more I'm delighted to be joined by Margaret Edgel from Mount Briscoe. Margaret, tell us more about this event. Um, from what I'm reading online, it sounds absolutely amazing and delicious. We basically take a heifer and we, we age. So she's been slaughtered, she's dry aged, she'll be dry aged for 42 days, you know, in total. And um, so that's the picture. So this year we're having the Galloway heifer 
and then all the produce is grown in the farm so I have my own polytunnel etc so we uh, so all the fruit everything essentially that you graze on the evening is from the farm with the exception of dairy because we, we don't have any um, dairy animals and we purchase that from an artisan uh, supplier in Clock Jordan so we me covered so that's that's the picture so all the food so it's a four course meal at 75 euros uh, per ticket uh, tickets are available as I said on Eventbrite and that, and so even the timber is planked so the straw that you sit on is, is organic the timber is from the farm uh, we made a grill it's an artisan uh, an Argentinian rather uh, chef from the steakhouse 1810 in Athlone he comes he's booked and he actually cooks the meat all of the veg and the desserts and the salad I make all of that you know and it's all made on the day everything's fresh you know literally the salad's only just picked 10 minutes before you sit down to the table When you began describing it I could detect kind of a slight Argentinian feel to this as well in terms of you know slaughtering the animal and and probably use that you also claim though I'm saying you're going to use um, ancestral cooking methods as well so fire plays a big role in this what type of methods exactly are we talking about there and and what is Gustavo likely to serve up Yeah so I designed a big grill three years ago and we got that made by a local kind of guy that does work with laser cutting steel and stuff so it, it has various functions that it can lower and drop the heat and then all the timber again is from the farm and so he comes at about midday on the day and he just gets the fire going and stoked and then he starts to slowly kind of heat that so that it, it literally is only I suppose served about 8.30 but he actually starts really early But you serve it al fresco too you have a unique kind of setup there and you really kind of go kind of all out as well in terms of how you dress oh, yeah, the location from the grill yeah yeah no strict and again we get local um, waiters so it's proper service you know full service there's no it's not a buffet you know what I mean people come they sit down they have a cocktail when they arrive there's a stretch tent with cocktails and that uh, there was a bit of a music session afterwards last year and so then it's just a long if you can imagine it's a long table supper under you know, a cat it's like we have a a line of beech trees in the wall garden and I refer to it as under the canopy of the beech trees so even if it rains it doesn't matter because the leaves keep the water off you you know so and, and that's it and then there's fire pits down each side it's, it's glorious it's just a really special evening it's the only way to define it you know Thank you Margaret that's it from Taking Care of Business for this evening I'll be back next Tuesday from 7pm talk to you shortly